If you would, open up to Genesis 32 and we will get going. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Jacob today. So Jacob is um, a guy, right? He's in the Old Testament. He, he had a twin brother named Esau. All right, so you guys are familiar with who Jacob is. He had a, he had a red-headed, hairy brother named uh, Esau. His dad was Isaac. Uh, what we know about Jacob is that his whole life was consumed with um, figuring things out on his own and being self-reliant. The thing that we know about Jacob is that he stole his brother's uh, birthright, or he tricked his brother into giving up his birthright by making some really good stew. Um, so Esau was this like ogre, hairy, ginger, hunter guy. And Jacob was, Jacob was the, the guy in the, in, in the kitchen making the food that, that Esau would bring. So naturally Isaac loved um, Esau more because he was the manly man and, and Jacob was the um, more delicate guy, if you will. Um, and so Jacob, uh, he, he tricks his brother, being the second born, um, he, he tricks his brother into giving him um, his, his birthright for the exchange for some stew. And then later on in life when his dad is getting old, when Isaac's really old, he tricks Isaac into giving him his birthright, or, um, or the blessing, excuse me, so the firstborn's blessing. He tricks his dad into giving him that by putting goat's hair on his arms and playing on his dad's poor blind self. I mean, the guy is not, not exactly your, your, your boy scout, right? He's, he's always conniving, always tricking, always deceiving, always lying, always trying to figure out things on his own. So this is who Jacob is. And so in chapter 32, what happens is naturally Esau is pretty TO'd, right? He's pretty upset with, with Jacob. And so he wants to kill him. And so Jacob does the wise thing and he flees. His mom says, you better get the heck out of Dodge. Your brother's going to kill you. He's huge. He's a ginger. He'll rip you up. Do it, right? <laughs> Any gingers out there? I love you back there. Yes. Um, so he, he, his mom's like, your, your hairy your brother is going to kill you. You better get out of here. So he flees to his uncle's house. Good hiding place, right, with your uncle. And so he goes to his uncle's house, and um, he, he's there for seven years, and, and he wants to marry his uncle's daughter, so his cousin. You figure that out. Super weird. Um, it was okay back then, I guess, but here, not so much. You'd have to live in, like, Arkansas. Anyone from Arkansas? <laughs> Any gingers from Arkansas? Because I'm be over too. <laughs> Um, so, so he goes to Arkansas, or wait, no, <laughs> back up. He, he flees to his uncle Laban's house to stay with his uncle Laban for seven years. He ends up marrying one of his, um, one of his cousins, and, and so his father-in-law Laban tricks him into thinking that uh, on the wedding night, that oh yeah, I'm giving you Rachel, which is the second born, but really he gave, her, he gave him uh, Leah, and so he tricked him. So he worked, ended up being there for about 14, about 20-ish years. He's there fleeing from his brother, hiding out, and then in chapter 31, he actually turned back a couple pages or a page, depending on where you're at in your Bible, to 31 verse 3, and just a simple verse that says this. This is Jesus, or God, excuse me, speaking to <clears throat> Jacob. It says, And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So it's time to come home. It's time to face your fears. It's time to meet your maker, so to speak. It's time to face your giant hunter, hairy-chested brother guy. Um, and and if, as you can imagine, Jacob's not too fond of this idea because um, his brother is, is his brother. It's Esau. I mean, he's really upset with him, and ra- rightfully so. I mean, he stole his birthright. He uh, tricked his father, deceived his father. You know, th- then he just took off you know, in the middle of the night type of deal. So, <coughs> excuse me. 
This is where we pick up here in chapter 32, verse 31, or excuse me, verse 1. Um, Jacob is now on his way to meet Esau. And uh, so Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them and said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahinanim. And Jacob sent messengers before, uh, before him to Esau, his brother, and, and in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus my servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent uh, to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. So, Jacob is scared out of his mind. I mean, just set the scene here. He, he's wronged his brother on multiple occasions, and now God's told him it's time to go back. I mean, the fear that's probably overcome him, the, the anxiety, the fear of the unknown, is probably running rampant right now. And as he's on his way back, he meets some angels of God, right? And they're like, hey, uh, you're going to be okay. Like, so the, the weird thing about Jacob is over the course of his life, he's met with like dozens of, of angels. And like God just plainly laid himself out to Jacob. And yet he still is operating in the flesh his, his entire life up until this point. So Jacob, is, 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 he begins to suck up to his brother, right? He says, okay, servants, I want you to go ahead and I want you to take all of these, um, take this message, tell him, my Lord, my Lord, have mercy on me. You know, he's really buttering up his, um, his brother. How many of you guys have kids, right? And the second they want something, they get the butter out, right? And they start lathering up whatever it is, and they try to make it the most presentable way. They're like, Dad, I, I want to, this is community service thing for the homeless. Uh, I want to go to it. Um, really, you just want to go to your buddy's house, and there's a homeless guy that lives behind him, right? And so, but they don't present, they don't package it that way. They package it in a way to where like, oh, sure, you can go. So this is exactly what Jacob's doing. He's trying to butter up his brother, uh, but not once does the scripture say that he's going to offer an apology or to confess his sin or to... Um, you know, just, just try to make things right the correct way. He doesn't do that. What he does is he goes and tries to butter up and say all these new, or all these, these pretty things to his ears, you know, like tickle his ears. And um, what we get from Jacob is, once again, he's always scamming, always scheming, always figuring out things on his own, always operating in the flesh. So verse 6 says this, so then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, hey, we came to your brother Esau and he's also coming to meet you. And he's like, okay, cool, with 400 men. They're like, oh, no, this is exactly what I was fearing. Uh, verse, verse seven, so Jacob was greatly afraid, rightfully so, and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. And he said, um, if, if Esau comes to to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So Jacob, as you can imagine, is terribly, terribly afraid. Um, And to add fuel to his fire of scaredness, he's got 400 people coming with his brother. I mean, and you got to imagine, you are who you hang out with, right? Or the people you hang out with are normally like-minded people. I'm assuming that Jacob's posse, or or, uh, Esau's posse, is probably a bunch of, like, giant dudes, hairy guys that like just kill things for fun, right? This is what's going on. And he's thinking, I mean, and and the the worst things come through your mind when you're scared, right? Or it's just me. So you're like, oh, cool. You know, I I shared the story a a while ago, but we, my wife and I, we went to, um, uh, not, not, no, what is it? Uh, Disneyland, the other one. What's the other one? 
California Adventure, right? And there's like this like super kitty ride that like swings you around. Like you're in these like big logs and it's got like the strings that hang out, like cables that hang to it. And you go out over the water and you like go around. You know what I'm talking about? Is anyone? Yeah, it's like super lame, right? So me and my wife and my three-year-old daughter at the time are on it. My wife's pregnant. Were you pregnant, babe? I think you're pregnant with Lindley, our second daughter. And, um, and we're going and, and, I, and, and Bella, she's like putting her hands up like, yeah, it's the coolest thing ever, right? And Sarah in the front car is tearing up. <laughs> And I'm like, look, I'm like, Bella, look at mom. She's crying, you know. Let's, let's make her feel terrible like the good husband and dad I am. So um, I start to say, babe, what if these cables snapped and we flew off into the water? And this, this fear overcame her. And she thought of the worst possible scenario that could happen. Um, and this is exactly what's going on in Jacob's mind, too. Like, that could happen, I guess. You hear of, like, weird stuff happening at music parks. But um, it's most likely not going to happen. We were going, like, it was like basically an adult Dumbo ride. Like we were going like four miles an hour. Took like a whole six minutes to get around one turn. Um, but she was afraid of the unknown. And, uh, and that's exactly, I love you. That was exactly what happened here with Jacob. He had this fear come over him and this, this trembling because he had 400 people coming against him. And so he shows no faith in the Lord again by what his actions were in verse eight. Um, it says that he said, if you eat, uh, excuse me, verse 7. So Jacob was greatly afraid and terrified, or greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided, his two, or his, divided the people um, that were with him into um, two companies, basically. So he took his people, his wives, his kids, split them in half, said, okay, you over here and you over here. So if Esau comes and attacks and kills half my family, at least I got the other half, right? It's just sick individual. Um, but this is, what, this is his thinking. He's thinking, well, I guess um, if I only have to lose half, this is a way I can get around it, right? But no, no faith in the Lord when the Lord said, hey, I'm going to be with you. It's time for you to go home. I mean, God's not going to lead him down to a place where he's not going to be with him. Now, it doesn't mean that when God leads us, that we're going to get out of our situation or get out of trouble or not, not be in, um, in, in um, a tribulation or a trial, but that means that God somehow will get us through that. And so Jacob has, has no faith in the Lord. Um, and so he's figuring out a way once again to scam and to scheme and figure out ways and to kind of do things on his own to, to set himself up to where he can take the less, uh, least damage as possible. Verse 9 <laughs> says this. Uh, then Jacob said, oh God. <laughs> oh God. That's what I'm thinking, right? Oh God of my father and Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, the Lord. Who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of, the, um, of all the mercies of all the, um, and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have come <clears throat> to two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered uh, for multitudes. So this sounds like a good prayer, right? Jacob's like, okay, things are getting real. I'm really going to pour it on. I'm really going to butter up God and say, God, don't you remember all the things that you've promised me? You said that you would be with me. You said that you would make my descendants as many as the sand on the seashore. You said this, you said this. I mean, he's challenging God the way I see it. And the reason I see that is because if you go on to verse 13, we'll get there in a minute, he begins to scheme and to scam again to figure out how he's going to get out of it. This is not a prayer of a man who's come to the end of his rope. This is a prayer of like, oh, God, save me now. I'm going to go back and doing my own thing because I really don't believe that you can do what you said you're going to do. I think a lot of us, this is the prayer that we, we pray very often is, is we get... 
Um, we realize the need to pray. We realize that God's our only chance at getting out of a situation and God's our only hope, but yet <clears throat> we still have a plan B in case God fails us. Am I all alone or some of you guys plan Bers too? Um, this is exactly what Jacob's doing. He, he has a plan B. But the most ironic thing is he, he begins to remind God as if God has forgotten his promises to Jacob. Just one chapter ago, in verse 3, we read it. It said, I will be with you. It's time for you to go meet your brother. I will be with you. And then he begins to remind God, oh, yeah, you, remember you said that? Are you sure you know what you're talking about? Because there's 400 guys coming to meet me. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? I have a five-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, she loves to remind me about things that I told her. Um, and it's just super irritating, right? Anyone with me? Right? You just get super irritated, like... Cameron, is that you? Irritating your dad over there? I saw Ben raising his hand, right? Don't irritate your dad, okay? Um, but we get, my, my daughter, so we get in the car, and she does it to my wife all the time, and we get in the car, and within three and a half seconds of me being in the car, dad, put your seatbelt on. Okay, thanks, Bella. And so I do. Dad, put your seatbelt on. Dad, put your, mom, put your seatbelt on. I'm like, we got it. Okay, and now my wife and I, we've been eating really good, um, and I've been trying to lose weight, and you know, just you know, the whole New Year's thing, right? So I'm doing that, and, uh, and then Bella will say, Dad, you can't eat that. <laughs> like, I've never wanted to shake my kids so bad. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it, it, this is the way I picture Jacob talking to God, like as if he's demeaning God, and like, don't you know what you said to me? Don't you realize what you've said? Don't you realize the promises that you've made? But this is the way that we act sometimes towards God. When things don't go our way, we, we begin to remind God as if he's forgotten who he is. We begin to remind God that his, of what his promises are when our circumstances change. Here's the cool thing about the Lord, is that the Lord doesn't change regardless of our circumstance. We could be in the worst of circumstances, we could be in the best of circumstances, and God doesn't change. We don't dictate to God how he should be and how he should feel. Our actions, our feelings, our situation have no bearing on God whatsoever. By God's grace, I breathe. By God's grace, you breathe. And yet we come to God as if we have a bone to pick because he's not doing things the way that we think he should. And this is the spot that Jacob's in right now. Jacob's in the spot of, 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 of testing and trying God. You know, Jacob... Jacob reminds me of, you guys remember the story of Job? You know, I mean, that dude had it rough, right? He was like serving Jesus, loving God, like, or serving God, Jesus wasn't in the flesh yet, but you get it, right? Serving the Lord, loving on God, most like righteous man on all the earth, and then all of a sudden God allows him just to be um, tempted by Satan. You know, God allows the, the trials to come in his life. You know, and, and his family and his herds and, and all these things begin to, to die and, and, and storms come. And then his wife says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just curse God and die? Like, God's not on your side. God's not on our side. Just curse God and die. Things are going bad. It's God's fault. Blame him and die. His friends are giving him terrible advice. You know, he starts hanging around, you know, these, these three guys and they're just giving him terrible advice. Like, you know, just, just forget this whole God thing. Like, it's not working out, as you can tell. You have done nothing wrong and yet all these things are happening to you. And in Job 38, verse 3, um, it, it says this. It's, it's one of my, my favorite manly verses in the Bible. It says this, God speaking to Job as he begins to doubt and as he begins to question God. And, and God's response to, Je- to Job's questions is this. 
Prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I created the water? Where were you when I created the land? Where were you when I created life? Where were you when I breathed life into Adam? And so on and so forth. And that kind of helps us put it into perspective. You're like, whoa, I'm sorry. I didn't, didn't mean that. But this is essentially what we do when we question God. God's like, well, where were you when I created you? Where were you when I created the ability for you to think? And this is exactly what's happening to Job. He's got it all twisted. He's got it wrong. He's quite, he begins to undermine what, what God's going to do in his life because he's not doing it in God's timing. He's not, or he's not doing it in, in uh, Jacob's timing, excuse me. So in verse 13, he prays this, Oh Lord, have pity, have mercy on me. You're, you're so tall and handsome. You're, you're, you're so great, you know, like, Oh Lord, oh master, you know, you are so, you're this, you're that, right? And then the very next thing you see in verse 3, So he lodged there that same night, and he took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats, uh, 20 male goats, 200 uh, ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milk camels, and their, and their colts, 40 cows, and 10 bulls, uh, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servant, every drove by itself. Um, and he said to the servant, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded uh, the first one, saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, uh, asks you, uh, saying to to whom have you uh, do, to whom do you belong? Excuse me, and where are you going? And whose are these in front of you? Uh, you shall say they are your servants. I mean, more terminology there to butter them up. They are your servants, Jacob's, and it is a present sent to them, uh, sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. And so he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he, uh, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before him, excuse me, that goes before me. And afterward, I will see him face to face and perhaps he will, uh, he will accept me. So the present went on over before him and he himself lodged at night, um, lodged that night in camp. So first it's Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, you're the best. You're awesome. The next thing, what do you do? He gathers up all of his livestock, right? He's 550 uh, animals plus the, the little baby ones that weren't mentioned. And, and he sends his servants ahead with this present to, um, to offer a, a peace offering, if you will. You know, to say, I'm so sorry, don't hate me, don't kill me, right? But nowhere in the text does it say that he went himself to offer an apology and to man up and to face his fears and to apologize. It doesn't say that. He says he sent others to do his dirty work. He sent others to try to appease, try to appease his brother. And so this, that's, this leads me to believe that his, his prayer wasn't sincere because right after his prayer, what does he do? He goes right back into to figuring things out on his own. And verse 20 says, you know, I will appease him with this present. I will appease him. I will make sure in my, you know, I, I will make sure that he's okay with me. No trust in the Lord, no faith in the Lord. Verse uh, 30 or verse uh, 22 says, "And he arose that night and took two uh, two of his wives, his two female servants, and his and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford at Jebuk, and took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone." So Jacob, being the, um, 
really the coward that he is, he sends his brother or his, his, his sons, he sends his wives, his male servants, his, or his female servants, uh, the rest of his livestock, he sends them over the brook, right? But then s- stays there alone himself. Look at the very first part of 24. It says, then Jacob was left alone. Now, some, there's some commentators that say, oh, he was really going there to pray. You know, he was really going there to really just pour out his heart from the Lord. But I don't, I don't see it that way because he already had that opportunity before. I think literally he was, he was saying, okay, you guys go first. Maybe my brother will come and wipe you out and then I can take off. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but that's what it looks like to me in the text. But what we do know from Jacob's life is he did not trust in the Lord fully at this point in his life. He had a faith in God. I mean, he realized who God was. He met with God, you know, he met with his angels. So he knew who God was, but his life didn't reflect him having that, that true faith as, as we're called to have. And so... Jacob sends his family over the Jordan, um, and, and he himself stays behind. And, and the, here's the cool thing about our Lord, is that when Jacob stayed behind, that's when God met with him. God met with him when he was alone, when he was silent, when he got away from the hustle and the bustle, when he got just some time to himself, that's when God met him. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you're by yourself, and, and there's, you know, like, I don't like scary movies at all. I will not watch them. Like, I turn the channel when, like, a scary commercial comes on. You know, I'm like, ah, Sarah, turn it. You know, I close my eyes and do this. You know, like, but in our fear, the worst thing we can do is be alone in our fear. And God came and comforted him in that fear. But it's not the kind of comfort that you and I are actually going to want because he really wrestles with him and beats him up. <laughs> so he wrestles with God, but we'll get to that in a minute. But I think that Jacob... It, it was in his silence that he really had this encounter with, 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 with the Lord. You know, how many of us get too busy at times to, um, to read our Bible or to do Bible studies with our, with our kids or to pray with our wives or whatever it is? I mean, I'll be the first one to admit that, you know, sometimes I, I, just, I just don't do it, you know, like I ought to. Because, and, and we blame it on being busy or working late or, you know, whatever it is. And for most of us, you know, we work long hours. I understand that. I'm not saying, you know, that quit your job and do Bible study. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we need to make time for the Lord. You know, and, and Jacob, always figuring out things on his own, he never left time for God to, to intervene, for God to move. You know, sometimes we, we, we beg the Lord, would you please do something in our lives? And then we give him like three and a half seconds to answer. And if he doesn't, okay, all right, that's confirmation. I need to do this on my own. Thanks, God. You know, but, and this is the way we are at times. You know, we desperately want to hear from the Lord, but we don't give it enough time. There was a 400-year silence between uh, Malachi and, and Matthew. I mean, sometimes God is silent at times because he wants us to wrestle through that. He wants us to pray through that. You know, and we're, we're quick to, to make decisions and um, come to resolutions on our own. And uh, verse 24, the second part of verse 24, and this is where Jacob gets real with the Lord. It says this, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So we know that this man is a Christophany of Jesus because, you look, jump down to verse 30 real quick. It says, so Jacob called the name of the place uh, Penel, for I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So Jacob said, look, I, I've seen God face to face. I've wrestled with God face to face and my life is preserved. Okay? I mean, Moses, you know, was, I mean, you look at the, um, we have the privilege and honor to be able to come before the Lord um, because the veil had been torn between the Holy of Holies and us when Jesus died on the cross. Pre-Jesus dying, that wasn't the case. 
It was the priest one day a year could come in the presence of the Lord and atone for the sins of Israel. And so for, for him to, to, to literally have this encounter with, with Jesus was, was unbelievable and remarkable. But, but notice what it says, um, that the man wrestled with Jacob. It wasn't Jacob doing the wrestling, but it was man wrestling with Jacob. And I think that this is, um, Jacob needed this encounter desperately to change the course of his life. Because he was a man operating in his own strength, yet a believer, yet operating in his own strength. I think many of us can relate to that. And so Jacob desperately needed this encounter. And um, so he, the man wrestled with, with Jacob. Now wrestling is, is, a, is a fighting uh, term, and it means a coercive attempt to force one's will upon another. This is what God did. He forced his will upon Jacob. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled back. It doesn't say that. It said the man wrestled with Jacob until morning, meaning God was putting the whooping on Jacob all night and posing his will upon him. And we like to think like, you know, uh, it says that later on that Jacob begins to prevail, um, but it's not winning in the sense of winning a wrestling match or winning a fight. But um, we'll get to that in a minute. But one thing I, I like to share with the, the students, the high school students, is that um, it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay not to challenge God, but it's okay to not understand what God's word says. It's not okay to stay there, but it's okay not to understand. But we have to fight through that. We have to wrestle through that. Paul said in Philippians that we need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we need to work towards our salvation or work for salvation, but once salvation is had through accepting the free gift that God's given us, now it's time to, to put in the work to be a Christian. I don't know about you, but being a believer, being a Christian in this, this day and age, is, is, it's impossible to do without God. It's impossible. You cannot live a spirit-filled life apart from the Spirit. You cannot walk uh, with Jesus, apart from Jesus. You, 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 you can't do it. And so Jacob, he begins to wrestle uh, with this, this man, this Jesus. And um, you know, I tell the students all the time, too, that um, you can't always, you can't just take every word I have to say as, as gospel truth. And if you don't back it up against God's word, I could be feeding you guys a bunch of lies and you would never know it. You're like, wait a minute, you wouldn't do that, Kyle. No, I wouldn't. But I'm saying you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know unless you take it to God's word and say, well, wait a minute, is, is that truly what God's word says? And so for us as believers, we need to be doing this. It's day in and day out, we need to be taking things to God's word and say, okay, well, what should I do in, in my career? Well, the answer is in God's word. Not that, hey, you should take this job here, but what is God's will? That you would know him and you would make him known. If God's calling you to a career or a job that's going to take you away from your family for, um, for longer, or if God's calling you to a career where you're not going to be able to be consistent in leading your family in Bible study or leading your family to taking them to Bible studies or whatever, maybe, I'm not saying that's the case, maybe that's not God's will for you. But how would you know? You need to wrestle with God on these issues. And so Jacob begins to wrestle with God, and or God really begins to wrestle with Jacob. In verse 25 it says, um, and now when he saw, this is Jesus, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of his hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is like really weird, right? Like God is wrestling with Jacob, and it says that Jacob begins to prevail. 
well, why, am, like, that doesn't even make sense to me, right? So we had to dig into the scriptures and, and find out what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, look at Hosea. I think it's up on the screen. Yep, there it is, right there. Uh, Hosea, chapter 12, verse 3, uh, says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. The, the key part is with there at the end of the sentence. That is the idea that, God began, that Jacob began to have power with God. It wasn't that Jacob was wrestling God in his own strength and began to prevail, but with the power of God, he was able to wrestle through his, the, these issues that he was dealing with. He was wrestle through the, these fears and these doubts and these, the uncertainty of his brother coming with these 400 men and so on and so forth. And it was with the power of God that he was able to wrestle through these issues. So Jacob's wrestling with God was the main turning point in his life. It was what, what, what set the course of his life, um, put it back on the right track. And so because, because Jacob, I, I believe he just got honest and open and real with God. You know, we, we as believers, we can, we can sure fool a lot of people. I know I did for many years. We can fool people into thinking that, um, that, we're, that we're walking with the Lord. We can fool people into thinking that, you know, nothing bothers us or that we don't get depressed or we can fool think people into thinking that our lives are, are, are fine and dandy. We have the white picket fence and the, the you know, dogs and the children, the blonde hair, blue eye family. We, we, we can pretend to, to have that, but if we don't have that, um, then we're only fooling ourselves. I mean, because God knows. God knows our struggle. God knows our, our, where we're feeling insecure. God knows where we're hurting. God knows where, we're, where, where the doubts are coming from. And Jacob gets real with God here because you look at, look at verse uh, 4 of Hosea. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, He had power over the angel and prevailed, and he wept and made supplication unto him. I think it was his honest struggle with the Lord. The Lord began to break him. He got real and got honest with God. And it says that, that he, he wept and made supplication. Jacob wept, a proud, self-reliant, go-getter, do-it-myself kind of guy, like wept. And the way this, the wept here in, in, in the Hebrew, it's like the ugly cry weeping, you know? Like, you'll be famous on YouTube, ugly cry, if someone gets out on film, like crying. It's not like, oh, Lord, please help me. Not like this fake cry he had back in verse 7 through, you know, 9 through 12. This is like, a legitimate weeping and weeping. And the word supplication, it literally means an action uh, of asking or begging for something earnestly and humbly. I mean, Jacob is humbly weeping and humbly begging the Lord to do that work in his life because he got real with God. It was no longer this, this facade of, I'm okay, I can do it on my own, you know, because, I mean, Jacob is, you know, the tribes of Israel. I mean, it's a, he's a big deal, right? He's a big deal. But it, was, it wasn't until this point in his life that, that his faith was, um, was stamped, I believe, that his faith was, was solidified by the Lord. It was when he gave up all faith in himself and started trusting in the Lord, that's when he began to prevail, when God touched his hip and it came out of socket and he had that limp, that's when he began to prevail. That's when his life began to turn around. His place of defeat became his very place of victory. His hour of defeat became his hour of victory. You know, and, and to prevail with God, we, we must be brought to the end of ourself. We can no longer um, fake it until we make it. It doesn't work that way. 
Um, so my wife and I, we've been coming here to the, to the church since um, September of 2007. As we, we joined a growth group, there was just one growth group at Pastor Darius's house, and then it was a Thursday night. Um, church was on Thursday nights at a, another location um, in Temecula. And so we, we, started, uh, we started church then, but how we got there was I grew up... Um, Grew up in the church from about fifth grade. I was you know, lived with my grandparents for a while, and they took us to, um, you know, we were in Sunshine Preschool. I had, I went to Sunday school, things like that. Well, when we started growing up to the church, um, you know, I got real involved in junior high. Uh, went to the camps, and um, really, I, I believe my, my relationship with the Lord was super solid in junior high. Um, but then high school hit, and I went to a Christian high school, Calvary Marietta, and um, I went there, and, and I started uh, doing sports and playing football and things like that, and football really consumed my life. It was my favorite. It was, you know, everything I, I had wanted, um, and I, I was good at it, um, and so because I was so involved with football, my relationship with the Lord began to slip. I didn't go to youth group anymore. Um, I didn't go to—I went to church on Sundays, but really that's, that's not enough um, to have a solid relationship. I wasn't in my word, and things began to slip, and, and then— um, I, I ended up moving out of, out of my house when I was 18. Me and my brother, we got an apartment after I graduated high school. We got an apartment together, and that's when we just kind of went downhill quick. We started um, drinking all the time and gambling all the time, and this whole time I, I was, um, I used, uh, you know, uh, chewing tobacco. My wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, Sarah, she didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, she didn't know I was drinking every single night. She didn't know I was chewing tobacco for like four years. She didn't know any of that stuff. And I had this facade of, of everything was good on the outside because she would come home. She was away at college. She would come home on, on the weekends and we'd go to our church together and, and, you know, we knew everyone. We'd be shaking babies and kissing hands and, you know, everything looked great on the outside. Strike that, reverse it. Um, <laughs> we, we did all of these things and uh, I got thrown in jail. no. <laughs> Shake too many babies. Um, um, I don't shake any babies, for the record. I have a nine-month-old little boy. He's the cutest. Um, but uh, but we, you know, so I go to the church. I go to church on the weekends, and one day I, I was driving home from a Charger game on a Sunday. It was September 11th, 2007. I was driving home from a Charger game um, from San Diego, and I drove home drunk. My wife and I had an apartment together, um, and. Uh, and I went to bed, and I, I, she had found that I was, was chewing, and she woke me up in the middle of the night. I think it was like midnight, or I don't know what it was. It was all blur, and she called me on it, and I just felt like, felt like my hip went out of socket there, um, that, that sinking feeling, um, and I just broke down. I just started crying. You know, it was like that breaking point for me where God had touched my hip, and my wife had really, I think, put God's hand on my hip, and, um, but it was that breaking point in my life, in that, that, uh, that crushing um, work that God was doing in my life, and I could no longer fake it. I had to get real with her, and I had to get real with God, and I had to tell them, as if God didn't know, but I, but I told God everything, and I told my wife everything, and um, it was from that day, September 11, 2007, that I've been, you know, serving and walking with Jesus by His grace, um, not without mistakes, not without sin, not without blowing it, you know. Ask my wife. She could give you a laundry list of things I'm really bad at, and um, obviously, hopefully, things I'm good at, right, babe? That's right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it, was, it was in that place where, where I had to get real with, with God and I had to get real with my wife that the Lord began to change me. And he began to do this work in my life. And, uh, and it wasn't fun. You know, I had, to, I had to admit that I was a liar. I had to admit that I was, you know, um, just all of these things. And, you know, it's never fun to do that. But if I hadn't have done that, 
then I don't believe that my life would have truly changed because I think we have to, um, we have to get real with God and we have to get real with our, our spouses or with our, our families, you know, about our, our struggles and without our, our issues, you know. And in verse 26, something radical changes that, that, that leads me to believe that, that Jacob's life has been radically changed. Verse 26, it says, Let me go. This is Jesus speaking, the Christophany, the Lord speaking. Let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And then Jacob answered, Jacob. This doesn't sound like a man who is defeating Jesus to beg for a blessing, to demand a blessing. That sounds like someone uh, who has been broken. That sounds like a man who is, who is desperately clinging on to Jesus. Because you remember Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, it says that he wept and that he made supplication unto him. I mean, he's literally weeping and begging the Lord to be with him, begging the Lord for his blessing. This is when he began to prevail and his life began to change, when he could do nothing but hold on to Jesus. When that was his only line of defense was to hold on to Jesus himself, that's when he began to prevail. When he realized that his strength wasn't enough and his conniving wasn't enough and that all he could do was to weep at Jesus' feet and hold on to him desperately, when, that's when, he came, when he came to that realization, that's when he began to prevail. Jacob was being transformed into the man he never was but always needed to be. And there's some of us here in this room today that, that need to do that. Some of us men specifically that need to weep at the feet of Jesus and desperately cling to him. Realizing that us as men are not strong enough. We are not wise enough. We cannot do it alone. Verse 26, he says, I will not let you go. Can we honestly say this to Jesus, that you're not going to let go of Jesus? Can you get real with Jesus this morning and say, Lord, I will not let go of you until you change my life? Jacob has been reduced to a place where he's never been before. His, his, his name means trickster, deceiver, heel catcher. That's what his name means. And he's literally, literally begging Jesus to not let go of him. Jacob can't fight anymore. Verse 28. And he said... Uh, and, he, and he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob becomes Israel. I just said Jacob's name was, was trickster. It was heel catcher. It was deceiver. This is the, the name, or this is the meaning behind his name. And rightfully so. You remember he tricked his brother, he tricked his dad, you know, and, and he's always trying to figure things out. One st- a story about when he was at his uncle Laban's, uh, he was breeding all, he was like the shepherd of Laban's flock. And so he figured out a way to breed the sheep where they'd come out with spots. And he's like, okay, Laban, make a deal. I'll take all the animals that have spots. Deal. Okay, cool. You know, and then he started breeding all these animals and gave them spots. So he's always been doing these things, being a conniver, being a trickster, being, you know, figuring things out on his own. And then God says, you know what? I'm going to change your name. It's no longer going to be that. It's going to be Israel, which means governed by God. God rules. God reigns. Talk about a transformation. Talk about a trans, uh, transformed life. No longer is it, I'm in control, self-reliant, self-righteous man. But now, God's in control. 
I can do nothing but to cling on to Jesus and go for a ride of my life. In order for true change to, to be had, though, Jacob had to tell Jesus what his name was. Look at, look at verse uh, 26, or 27. So he told him, what is your name? And Jacob had the answer. He said, Jacob. I mean, I, I believe that Jacob had to admit who he was to Jesus before Jesus would change him, before he would change his name. And just like us, we need to confess our sins before God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us for all sins and cleanse us. But we need to admit who we are. In order to put to death that old man, we need to admit who the old man was and confess it before the Lord. And so Jacob here confesses who he used to be, and God gives him this beautiful, this new name. He gives him this, this fresh start. But you got to remember, Jacob was a believer. It wasn't as if he was some carnal person. He was a believer, yet his life needed to be transformed. So for us out there that, that love and know Jesus, our lives still need to be transformed. Our name still needs to be changed. Our hips still needs to be touched. We need to allow that Lord, the Lord to do that crushing, that, that breaking work in our life. Take, tear down the, the walls of, of self-reliance. Tear down the walls of of I can do this, you know, pick myself up by my bootstraps and, and keep trucking on. And some of us literally need just to weep at Jesus' feet and hold on to him. But God wants to give us a, a fresh start and give us a new life. Isaiah chapter 43, it'll be up on the screen. Um, Isaiah the prophet, he, he came to preach a message of repentance or judgment to the nation. And uh, so this is what God, God is speaking this to, to Israel. And he says this, don't remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? And I will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isn't that, that's a super encouraging verse for me. You know, that God wants to do a new thing in my life. But in order to do that new thing, he says, forget the former things. You can't dwell on the past. To move forward, you need to forget what's behind you. Paul said in Philippians, he said, forgetting those things which are behind you and reaching forward, pressing on towards the, the call, upper call of Christ Jesus. This is our plot in life, is to not dwell on the past, but to reach forward to what God has for us. But you know what? Sometimes this new work is, is scary. Most of the time, this new work is scary and it's, uh, because it's the unknown. You know? and, and no one likes the unknown um, but notice what it says in, uh, in verse, th- verse uh, 19 towards the end. It says, I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Here's how God operates. And it's not always the way we want him to operate, but it's the best way. God operates in his own timing, in his own provisions, in his own strength. That doesn't mean we get to dictate to God what our rivers look like and what our roads look like. That means that we will be brought to a new place where we will have a new name. We will have a new limp, <laughs> And yet God will make provisions in the unknown. In the desert will be a source of life and water. And in the wilderness, where there is no roads, God will make a path. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember how they, when we talked about it, we, um, Pastor Ted preached on it through Daniel, when uh, they wouldn't bow down to the king Nebuchadnezzar. And, um, and um, they, they threw him into the, the fire pit. And then there was a fourth person in there, and that person being Jesus. So if I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm like, God, couldn't you have just spared me going in the fire? Couldn't you just, like, put me around the fire? But that's not the way God works, is it? God goes in the midst of the trial, into the midst of the fire with you to pull you out. 
And that's what he's doing here. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to take you to a new place. Uh, Ezekiel talks about the same thing. as I'm going to take you to a new place. And it's going to be scary. But it's in that reckless abandonment, the way that... It's in the, the way that we recklessly abandon ourselves and focus and hold on to Jesus. And that's when we begin to get victory in Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 20. The parable here that Jesus speaks on. Um, he's speaking to the, the religious leaders of the day. And he shares a story about a, a tax, or a, not a tax collector, but a, a vineyard owner who leases his land out to some, um, out to some people. And um, it was harvest time, and so the vineyard owner sends his, his servants to collect uh, the money that was due or the fruit that was due. And what they do, the, the people that were renting the vineyard, they end up uh, beating the servants and throwing them out. So then the, the vineyard owner sends more um, servants to pick up, uh, to collect what's, what's rightfully due and and they, they beat them, and they send them out. And then the vineyard owner says, surely, uh, surely they'll respect my son. I'll send my son. And so they send his son in there, and they, they beat him. They dragged him out of the vineyard, and they killed him there. And so this is a picture of, of God in the Old Testament, how God would send his prophets over and over and over and over. And yet the people would reject him. People would reject him. People would reject him. Then he finally sent his son. Surely they'll accept my son. Surely they'll believe in my son. And what they do? What, what, did, what did the Romans do to Jesus? What did we do to Jesus? We dragged him out of the city. We beat him and we killed him there. And so as Jesus is giving this um, parable, um, the, the part I really want to focus on is verse 17 and 18. And it's how we respond to that broken work, that, 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 uh, that grinding work that God wants to do in our life. It says, What then is it that, uh, that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Jesus. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will be grind, it will grind him into powder. And this is the choice that's, that's in front of each and every one of us. Either we can allow that that breaking that grinding work that God wants to do in our lives and we can fall on Jesus in humility and brokenness or Jesus can fall on us with his judgment there's only two choices for every person it's either we can fall on Jesus and be broken of ourselves be broken of our sin be broken in humility or we can have the rock of judgment Jesus fall on us in judgment and Jesus uh, or turn back to, to Genesis 32, and in verse 31, we'll close here, it says this. Just as he crossed over the, uh, crossed over Pinnell, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. So Jesus left his mark on Jacob in two ways. One, he broke his hip, he crushed his hip, he walked with a limp. And the other is he changed his name. Can you say today that, that your name needs to be changed from old man to new man? And can you say, can you honestly and be real with God and honestly say that your every step is marked by Jesus?